I know many of you woke up this morning and saw the weather today and probably gave a big sigh and wishing you could stay kind of cuddled up in your rooms. Uh, this is my favorite weather. When I was a senior in high school, it rained 85 days in a row uh, where I grew up. So while I don't want that to happen again, I do think there's something nice about seeing the rain. They say it's good luck and I think uh, a very fitting for today. And we're joined today by a really special, special member of our community, which I'll get to in just a moment. But good morning. And we are here this morning to recognize and honor the significant academic achievements by members of the class of 2023. Perhaps there's no more meaningful way than by the election to the cum laude society. As a side note, although I am the president, I was never actually a member. Uh, as you know, this organization is for secondary schools, what Phi Beta Kappa is to the college and university level. The number of inductions for a particular school chapter are limited by the society. In the fall, we announced the election of a first group from the senior class. If you'll remember, we did that in the Simon Theater. And I want to begin this morning by recognizing once more those 13 individuals. When I call your name, I'd like you to please stand and I would ask that we hold our applause until all names are called. Justin Ahn, Damian Dowling, Dayong Kim, Colin Lissette, Catherine Orders, Peter Rice, Olatz Marquez, Finia Stieg, Matt Huang, Brant Warner, Masa Yamazaki, Dan Zagori, Daniel John. Little ripple. And after the winter term, the faculty, staff, uh, members of the Mercerburg chapter cum laude met again to consider academic records for other members of this year's senior class. And as a result of that consideration, 12 additional students were nominated and elected to membership in cum laude. Those students are, again, I would ask you to stand when your name is called and hold applause until everyone is standing. The additional members of the cum laude society for the class of 2023 are Ava Anthony, Per Carrera, Grace Carter, Mel Court, Sanchin Allen He, Emma Hobbs, Claire Ip, Greta Lawler, Isabel Sue, Zeke Waddlington, Liza Webb, and Jasmine Zhu. All of you again, and especially our new members, congratulations and well done. This is a significant achievement and the sustainment of your academic work over the course of your career here is not an easy thing to do, especially as some of you have already found out about colleges next year and have doubled down your efforts to continue to show yourself in the classroom and uh, we could not be more proud of you. I'm pleased to introduce this year's cum laude speaker and a good friend of mine, Mr. Dean Patterson. Dean is a part of the Mercersburg class of 1971 and has devoted his entire professional career to helping institutions of higher ed understand the needs of all students, regardless of their perceived race, culture, or ethnicity. He holds undergraduate degrees in English and psychology and a master's degree in health science education and lifespan development, all from Case Western Reserve University. Dean spent 10 years at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in his professional career before returning to Case Western full-time in 1992. His most recent position before retiring in 2019 was Associate Vice President of Student Affairs and Dean of Students. 
At Mercersburg, Dean was a football and track and field member and lived in Maine Hall. He was awarded recently the most distinguished honor of any alum, which is the Class of 32 Distinguished Alum Award, and that happened in 2021 at his 50th Mercersburg reunion. This is, again, the highest honor for any alum. He's also been honored by Case Western for his work there. When we asked uh, Mr. Patterson to speak today, we did so knowing that he is about unifying people and bringing everyone together. And his love for Mercersburg and his love for the work that he does, I think, will show through today. I'm particularly excited. I've known Dean for a couple of years and uh, am much, much better for it. He's the one who will send me a note out of nowhere and just say, I'm just checking in on you, making sure you're doing okay. Let me know if you need anything. Uh, and I think we're all very lucky to have him here. So please join me in giving Mr. Dean Patterson a warm welcome back to Mercersburg. Quentin, thank you very much for those very nice words. I had to take a moment to look out into the chapel. The last time I was here in this chapel, we had chapel every day, 1020 to 1030 every day. And we all had to wear jackets and ties. You look so much more comfortable. I'm a little bit jealous. I'm very happy for all of you. But to be honest, I'm a little bit jealous because it looks like Things have really changed. And I think one of the first things I want to say to all of you, it's so good to see all my brothers and sisters in this room. The ones who know it, the ones who don't know it, and maybe the ones not sure if they want to be. But the bottom line, we all are brothers and sisters, whether we know it or not. History didn't start where often history is taught in a classroom. We all originated from the same place, Africa. If you talk to anthropologists, we all know why we all look different, our hair, our skin. And the challenging part of that, the way we've done history, tears us apart rather than brings us together. It's very different when you think somebody's your brother and sister, particularly when you don't, shouldn't care what they look like. But that's not how society works. That's not how the world works. So I say this to all of you, because all of you are the future. You can make this world be much better. But I'm not sure if you hear that enough. Do you know how important all of you are? I think a lot of students and young people don't know that. And they never hear it enough. You need to hear it every day. Your gifts. Everyone in this room is a gift. To this world. To people. To making it better. But you need to know you have the power to do it. Each and every one of you. All of you are smart. All of you are brilliant. But you don't know it yet. And not enough people are going to tell you. First, I want to try to talk with everyone today. Faculty, staff, students. Because in my mind, all of you are in this together. You're not separate. Oftentimes at my university, which I worked at for 40 years, but I'm not old. I'm wonderfully seasoned. And it's all your jobs to keep on seasoning me, make me have better seasoning. That's why I felt working with students was so important. They always kept me on my toes. They taught me all the things that no one else would teach me. And to be honest, when I retired, I gave most of my credit for everything I learned in my life from students. See, students aren't told that either. You're our best teachers. Students often feel they're here, staff and faculty, 
A lot of times staff feel like second-class citizens. Of course you're not. Faculty usually are the ones who proceed to be on top, but the bottom line is they should be the students. Faculty and staff wouldn't be here without you. But that's not how they're taught to think either. That's not how you're taught to think. So from this day on, I want to say something to you. You're on top. Don't you ever forget that. You hold faculty and staff accountable for making sure they do the right things. But that also means you have to do the right things. Because you're their teachers too. So that means no one gets to be mistreated. In our society, to me, that's most important. It's not about, we talk about race, gender, sexual orientation. For me, it's only one race, human, homo sapien. Race is a construct to separate us, for people with power and privilege to keep it. It's one race. So it's very hard when I have to mark something on a paper to ask me about race. I always have to write in my race. Human, homo sapien. Like I said, all of you are my brothers and sisters, whether you know it or not. You're also my children at the ages you are. So it's my job to make sure I do all I can to help you to be the best that you can be, but also to teach me how to do it better. Every one of you has a story. When I used to work with students, I'd bring them into my office. Actually, faculty and staff, I'd say the same thing. The first thing they heard when they walked in my office was you're most important. You're my best teacher. Because you're the expert about you, not me. The last thing I would say, I always try to do what's in the best interest of the people I serve, not what's easiest for me. And if I could display those three things when I worked with someone, they'd always come back. We make life so complicated. Oftentimes, people who want to think they're very smart make things very complicated so only a few people can understand. And if only a few people understand, that means they must be really smart. But the reality is, people who are truly smart make things very simple. Because they want everyone to understand. Not just because you have a college degree, not because you had some great perceived education. Everyone has value and worth. And no one is disposable. Why is that so complicated for us not to realize that? I need your help. Help me. Why, why would you think that? I want you to think about that as you go through your lives. I don't care what field you go into, I want you to be great. But I want you to think people first. I can get a car, I can get a table, I can get a chair. I can't get another one of you ever in this room. There's only one of you. So how do you ever get to be second? That's not how you treat people. For me, it's all about people and not mistreatment. So how do you make sure you don't mistreat people? The one thing we all have in common in this room, everyone wants to feel cared for, that somebody cares about it. That doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter how old you are, your sexual orientation, gender. Doesn't matter any of those things, where you come from. Everyone wants to know if somebody cares about it. And often we, as administrators or teachers or even parents, we think we know what makes you feel cared for. But what I've learned from all of you and people like you, we need to ask you. Everyone in this room would say something different. But if I were to ask you, think back, what really makes you feel like somebody cares about you? Think about a time in your life or a story when you really felt cared for. What would that look like? People's faces change. They start to smile because it gets that warm feeling like, I remember that. 
But that's not how we work with people. But if you ask them, let them tell you their story. And I would use that to work with people. Because then they let me know what makes them feel like somebody cares about them. Every one of you would say something different. And I would tell people, I'm not supposed to know what makes you feel cared for. I sure need to ask you so you can tell me. Then I'll try to use that in the way I treat you. And people would say to me, well, then you've got to treat everybody the same. And I go, I am. I'm finding out what makes them feel cared for. But that doesn't mean I have to do it the same way. People aren't robots. You get an education and you teach people how to think. I used to work with parents. And they would call me because their sons and daughters didn't want to do what they wanted them to do. Of course, the student would come and see me and I said, tell me what's going on because you haven't called your parents in a couple weeks and it's getting worried. And then parents would say, they haven't called me. I said, tell me, tell me why you haven't called them. Well, they want me to do everything. They tell me they don't want me to do anything I want to do. And they fuss at me and give me a hard time. I go, oh, parents think they're supposed to be able to control you. They've raised you. They've fed you. They've given you life. But what they forget, they've also taught you how to think. To use your brain. So I'd have to say that to parents. And parents would get quiet. i go, you know why they're really good or why you're having a hard time? Because you actually think you're supposed to control them. The only person you can control most of the time is yourself. Most of the time. Not all of the time. You need to know that. But that doesn't give you an excuse to do stuff. Okay? But I explained that to parents. I said, you have influence. You don't have control. As soon as you think you have control over others, you failed yourself. It's not going to happen. Don't set yourself up to fail. And you and your friends and students in this room, remember that your friends, you don't control them. You may have influence. So make sure you try to give them good influence. But don't think you can't ask your friend, what makes you feel cared for? You look like you're having a hard time. Now, I don't really do lectures. I do conversations that can take place later on. So the things we're talking about today, I want you to use them. I use my, my two sons as an example. My one son, happy-go-lucky, took him a long time to figure out that he needed to study in school and not just do crazy things. That's my youngest son, Tony. Okay? So I use this example. If someone was sitting on a bench and they were sad or crying, if my youngest son, Tony, went by and said he was going to take a test, okay, he'd stop and ask them, you look sad, how are you doing? And they'd start to tell him what was going on. He'd sit down next to them, he forget all about the test. He wouldn't care. He think I'm supposed to be with you. Well, it's, it's a good quality, but he needs to take his test, you know. Then my oldest son, <laughs> he's a lot more like me in many ways, but if he saw you, he'd ask the same question. What's going on? Are you, are you okay? And if you said, no, I'm having a hard time, he would say, you know what? I have to go take a test right now, but as soon as I come back, let me, I'll find you. Tell me where you're going to be, because I want to talk. I don't want you to be sad. Now, I wish my two boys could rub on each other and get parts of each of them, but of course it didn't work that way. My young son got all my crazy parts, so I don't want you to think, I never was perfect. And I, I usually got in trouble for doing the right thing, but people thought it was trouble because I didn't always agree with everyone. I was a person who, if a faculty member or, or someone senior said something that I think was okay, I let them know. Now, I didn't always have the skills to say it the way I should have said it. That's different. But my heart, for me, it was about letting someone know when they, what they were doing wasn't okay. So my life's worth working with students, they taught me how to say things a lot better. It's not just saying them, it's how you say them. 
You can have one person say something to you and they, and they think they're helping you and things are going to be better and you want to choke them before you leave. And if you could, you would. But you know they mean well, but it's like that's not what you needed at that time. You can have another person basically tell you the same thing and you, you want to hug them before you leave. But it's how you say what you say. And you ask people if they get in trouble and you bring them in and talk with them and say, why did you do that? I don't know. You never want to say that to anyone. Because then people think, you weren't thinking about what you were doing when you did it. You just did stuff. You don't think. But the real thing is someone has to be prepared to tell them. Even if it's not quite right, but have an answer. Why you did what you did. And at some point in time, they help you think, hmm, I probably shouldn't do that considering the circumstances I find myself in now. It's not about passing judgment. It's about seeking to understand. When you pass judgment on someone, they don't talk with you. When you fuss at them, they shut down. I think many of you probably know that. And I'm not talking about your parents, your faculty. I'm talking about you and your friends. When they start fussing at you, you look at them, and in your mind you're thinking, I'm somewhere else. This is not what I need to be thinking about. That's not me. But depending on how they ask you, and they're seeking to understand, they can make you feel that they care about you. Going back to that caring piece again. Caring is so important. So when you get in your profession, the job, and say you're the leader, make sure you treat the people that you serve. You need to be a servant leader. That means you serve all, I serve all of you. I serve everyone in my life. That doesn't mean you let them mistreat you. That's very different. You serve them. But you try to do what's in their best interest because you care so much. Not what's easiest for you. It's like teaching in a classroom. As a faculty member, a really good faculty member, if students think they're very hard, say they have 25 students and 20 are doing well and five aren't, to me, that's not the sign of a good faculty member. The key is making sure all your students do well in class. So you meet with those five, individually or however that works out best for them, and ask them, what can I do better? I want you to be successful in this class. So help me with how I can teach you better. That doesn't sound complicated. It's very caring, very different. Because the sign of a good teacher, everyone learns the information. But that's not how things always go. And most faculty and teachers, they teach from their preferred learning style. All of you have different learning styles. So is that easier for them or easier for you? Some of you might become professors and teachers. I used to teach kindergarten nursing school. Only man in the whole school. I had, I had a good time doing that. Except half the one didn't have fathers at home. So they wanted me to be their daddy too, which was very complicated. And I like things simple. Um, and at the time I taught, uh, they wanted you to keep the temperature in the room only at 68 to save money for the utilities in the school. Well, imagine having kindergarten nursery children sitting in their coats in the classroom you think they're thinking about studying and learning? Of course not, they're freezing. They're thinking about keeping warm. And so was I, I'm thinking, this doesn't make any sense. So having worked in healthcare, I used to get the little rubber gloves that you put on to examine people and fill them with ice cubes and lay it on top of the thermostat. What do you think happened? My room was always the warmest room. None of the children wore their coats anymore but I had to put a garbage can underneath the thermostat 
So when the principal came in, I just knocked it and dropped it in the garbage can. And the principal goes, Dean, your room was always warmer than everyone else's. How do you do that? I said, I don't know. I guess all the heat just comes to my room. So then I had to teach the other teachers I worked with. But I said, you cannot tell on me. But you got to put the garbage can underneath. That's your safety control button. Knock it in the garbage can. So I went and got them all gloves. So I get some ice, put it on top. And if somebody's coming, just knock it down. So it's little things you can do. Again, I told you, I tried to do the right stuff. I got maybe we got in trouble for doing it. Children shouldn't be forced to learn in their winter coats. That didn't make any sense to me. I have so many stories. I could probably write a book about all the things that no one would believe. Because I've learned a long time ago that truth is really stranger than fiction. And students taught me that too. I was a person who always got called when something was wrong. Be with a faculty member, staff member, student, something in the community. It's kind of like they used to call me Mr. Fix-It. Now, did I want to be Mr. Fix-It? No. Because uh, I was on call every day and every night. Phone would ring three in the morning. Say, Dean, I go, I'd be, they said, were you wide awake? You sound wide awake. I said, no, I sound asleep. I trained myself to wake up instantly because I knew something was wrong or something was calling three in the morning. So it's about knowing how to talk with people in ways that they understand, in ways that, again, they feel someone's listening to them. It's not always about doing the talking. It's learning how to listen. And we don't do that very well. We can learn, but we don't do that very well. Especially if one of your friends has come to talk with you, you usually jump into their story. Yeah, I remember that. I did that too. No, 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 no. Try one time asking your friend to tell you a story, and all you do is sit there and listen. And the only, uh, you can do any verbal commands, all you can do is shake your head, but you can't talk. You think you're going to lose your mind. You want to jump into the story like, yeah, I remember that, I was doing that same thing. That's not listening, that's taking someone's story and making it yours. But try that truly, try that with someone. I don't care if you're a faculty, staff member, student, anyone. That is so hard to do. I do workshops about all this stuff, teaching people how to do it. And people have such a hard time. I do workshops with religious leaders. I bring them all together. Uh, and a lot of times, they're not used to being all together. It doesn't matter the denomination. Every religion I've ever studied has been based on love. And I've tried them all. My mom was one of those people, no, you get to try which one you want, because it's for you, not for me. See which one you like. But I struggled with that. So I go to a religious ceremony, and I get out in the parking lot, and everybody's fussing, giving each other a hard time trying to get out the parking lot. They forgot everything they learned in church. And I used to go, this is crazy. And why did they go to church to come out and act like this? It didn't matter what religion was. Everybody did that. So I got confused. And for me, I definitely believe in God. I'm not going to say I'm the most religious person, but I'm very spiritual. Because for me, everybody's important. There isn't anyone who's not. So when you think about religion... Or you think about God, it should be all about love. It shouldn't matter the denomination. I worked a lot with Muslim students after 9-11. Because all of a sudden they were good one day and then they're bad and people mistreated them. So I'd walk around with them on camp. They'd go to class. I'd find out when they were going. I'd, they'd walk in a group to feel safe and I'd walk with them. And people go, why are you walking with them? I said, these are my children. I love them. Your brothers and sisters, why aren't you walking with them? When I worked in healthcare, I worked a lot, unfortunately, death and dying with children and families. And sometimes I couldn't get the Catholic priest to come to a Catholic family or, or an imam to come or a rabbi. 
the families who of those particular faith. But I knew all the religious leaders, so I'd get the one because I knew they loved everybody. So I'd bring a rabbi to a Catholic family, and they'd look at me kind of funny at first, but they knew me and how I thought about things. And I go, oh, this person loves you. They may not be of your particular religion, but they love you just as much. And they'll do anything to help you and your child and your family. And they would. But I think what's happened in our society is all been about separating us. Now again, we, we use race to separate, which is a construct. That's just something we use to separate us by the, what we look like, the color of our skin. And I think it's very complicated for young people because they're not taught that way. They grew up thinking all these things are real. Now, when we talk, well, I can never, I never forget when I heard, heard defund the police. You know, I'm thinking the police probably, and I worked with five police departments and I worked at my university, so the police were either my friends or my nemesis. I need them to be my friends. Because I dealt with so many types of difficult situations. But I used to think, that's really not the best way. It's not about defunding the police. It's reallocating your funds in the areas they need to grow and develop in. Don't take the money away. Use it differently to help them grow in the areas they're having trouble with. So when I talk to police, they go, but they don't say it that way. And I go, yeah, I know it's always how you say what you say. I said, I don't want you to fund it. I want you to work on the areas you need work in. Work with different cultures, different people. When people have mental illness, how do you respond to them? But again, that someone said it went around the country. And we had lots more problems than we always had. Then we talked about critical race theory. How many of you are familiar with all the conversations about critical race theory? I thought, you know, so, and, and that, they turned that into something complicated. See, for me it's complicated because there's only one race. Okay, so that already gets me in trouble. Okay, or makes it easier for me, one or two. The real issue, let's teach history. All of history. Because usually the people who write history are the people in power, the people who are privileged. It wouldn't matter what ethnic makeup the people who are in charge wrote history. Sure, they're going to make themselves look good. That, that's not a surprise to me. But the whole point is, we just want everybody to be taught history. With all the pieces in it, not just what you want to think. Because if, if we're not all taught the same history, we don't have the same knowledge or understanding. And anybody who feels they're left out is going to be hurt. It goes back to mistreatment. We don't want to hurt people. And I think sometimes we forget that. Now, again, all of you in this room, think about the first time you were mistreated. What did the person look like? Usually the person looked just like you. So if you complain about another ethnic group or makeup, really probably the first time you were mistreated, if you were honest, the person looked like you. I used to talk to students about it, they put their heads down. I go, come on, so okay. the person looked like you, and they go, yeah. I said, well, think again. Who was the person? Heads would go back down. It was someone in their family. So I did this with students for a particular reason. Because pain hurts. It doesn't matter what the person looks like. Often the person who started you first feeding is someone who looked just like you. But again, that's not how we're taught to think. It's got to be somebody else being bad. Someone else giving us a hard time. So it's trying to help people ask the right questions. Um, I worked with a lot of faculty 
using mediums. At the, at the time, I was the first known person of color in a meeting. I worked with lots of women, did a lot of social justice pieces for women. I, they sent me to Oxford to work with the Women's Social Justice Institute, and I'll never forget that because uh, when I landed at Oxford University in, a, in our first meeting of the night, about 35 of us, I'm the only man sitting in there, and women later on at the meeting, and the women looked like the United Nations. They were from everywhere. But they got together and decided they wanted to ask me a question. What do you think they asked me? How'd you get here? And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and they go, I'm thinking, they asked me how I got here. And I'm thinking, I know what they're asking. That's not an appropriate question. But I said, how can I answer? I said, oh, I came by airplane. How'd you get here? I didn't have to fuss. I didn't have to say a word. They all just looked at each other and put their heads down and going, yeah, Dean, we realized that probably wasn't the best question to ask you. Then the two men running the Social Institute, Justice for Women, Oxford, were two of my fair-skinned brothers, males. And I thought about it for a second. I said, hey, how did you two get in charge of the Women's Social Justice Institute when you're two men? Why is a woman in charge? They wanted me to shut up. They really hit me on the head, you know. But all the women at the group said, Dean, stop taking our thoughts. I said, well, Sam. They said, I said, women have been my best mentors. I love saying that. Women have been my best mentors. Men aren't used to saying it or hearing it, and neither are women used to hearing it. Why do we think it has to be someone who looks like you? That's like all of you are important, your gifts. You're the ones that are gonna make this world different. And we have to be prepared to know it's okay to change. Most institutions aren't ready for change because the people who run them want to keep running them. So you have to find a leader, and I'm gonna talk about Quentin now. You have to find a leader who's willing to do things differently and know it's okay. That doesn't mean it's gonna be easy, that's different. But you have to have people who wanna make things different for everybody. When I say different, better. But you have to support them, they can't do it alone. It's not easy to support things, something that you're not used to. But the only way for things to change is for people to speak up. But again, it's how you say it. So you gotta think about how you say it. I've been in meetings, again, with faculty and women, and I wonder women would make a, say a really brilliant idea. And most of the faculty would be men, and no one would say a word. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, if we do that, that'll change everything. No one says anything. Five minutes later, a man repeats the same thing. Everybody in the room, all the men, all excited, think it's wonderful. And to be honest, on the inside of me, I'm a little bit angry. I think that woman who said it is probably angry too. But society thinks I'm supposed to get angry and tell people off and say mean things. We the angry black man. You see, they don't know they're black too, but they don't know that. That's a whole nother story. But I'm supposed to be the angry black man. So I have to think about questions, just learning how to ask the right questions. So my question was, can you guys help me understand? This woman faculty member basically said the same thing and no one said a word. But when this man said it, everybody thought it was wonderful. Can you, can you help me understand? I don't understand. I said, did you not hear what she said? Or you only heard what he said? So help me understand, I'm a little bit confused. I didn't have to fuss, I didn't have to get angry. All the men got quiet, put their heads down. The woman faculty put her head down, she winked at me before she did. So it's not always, it's not about getting angry and fussing. That doesn't mean you don't have angry and stuff inside of you. But it's what you do with it. You have to learn how to write and ask the right questions. And that's not what we're taught either. We think you have to battle back and argue with someone in order to win whatever you're dealing with. I've had students from different countries, different places, different ethnic groups, someone come up to them and say, where are you from? 
And the student goes, oh, I'm from so-and-so. No, 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 where are you from? I'm from so-and-so. And it puts the person being asked a question like, I'm not doing a good job answering your question. That's my fault. That's not the way young people or anyone should be thinking. So I've learned to help people do that differently. So rather than you know, getting upset or angry, you, you look at the person and say, well, I've answered your question. Help me know, really know what you want to know. What, what are you really asking me? So it puts it back on them to have to struggle with what they're asking. Is it the right thing to ask? Did I ask it right? Are they willing to say what they really want to know? You shouldn't have to be the one with that, particularly with students. I used to help students with this all the time. Because they'd always struggle. I kept asking, well, uh, Dr. <laughs> Harold Wing Su, famous psychologist, Asian descent. <laughs> um, and I love, I love him. I love working with him. Um, people used to ask him, you know, where are you from? He'd go, Oregon. And they go, no, 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 no. Where are you really from? He said, Oregon. <laughs> so he would do the same thing. He'd say, what do you really want to know? I'm from Oregon. Oh, you looked at my face and think I'm supposed to be for someone else. But we're not comfortable having those kind of conversations. I'm used to having an uncomfortable conversation. Now, I've got to watch the times. So I like to talk. But I also want to give people a chance to ask me questions. Am I doing okay with time or am I close? Okay, so I, I want to leave a chance for questions. And I love talking with all of you. I mean, I wish I could be here all the time talking. And I mean that, because again, you're my best teachers, and as long as I have you for teachers, I should be pretty smart. Look at all these teachers I would have. So if anybody has any questions, please don't be afraid to ask, because this is about you, not about me. You're most important. This from Dallas, I have two questions. Now, don't make them too hard because I have to ask Quentin to answer it. Hi, I'm Ryan. Uh, I'm from Vienna, Virginia. Hi, Ryan. My question is, uh, you seem like a pretty chill dude, and from all your stories, it seems like you tend to keep your head cool when you're dealing with situations. But has there ever been a situation where you have not kept that, and you have gotten angry because something has been so outrageous? And if so, how do you deal with that in the moment and the uh, repercussions of that. <laughs> you asked me one of the toughest questions you could ask me. Because I don't want you to think I've always been this way. You know, I worked at it. It took a long time, a lot of work. When I worked in healthcare, I had a, a child who was probably about three months old, came in with a broken arm. Okay, and the mom brought, brought the child in. And I was working with them and you know, making sure she was okay, child. And, uh, I kept asking, and the way I, my hospital worked, if a child of a certain age is very young comes in, they were always concerned about child abuse. So I had to go get the social worker, who was my colleague, who I worked with, part of the team, and I had to explain to the mom why, and that was really hard. Um, then later on, um, the mom was crying, had a hard time thinking she hurt her child. But later on, the mom was in the elevator, and her husband got in the elevator with her, who I'd never met. He starts hitting on her, beating on her, and fussing at her for bringing the child to the hospital. Evidently, he had broken the child's arm and a fit of rage. I don't do well with anybody hurting women or children or anyone. And I'm gonna tell you this story, and I'm kind of ashamed of it, I'm kind of embarrassed by it, but that was one of those times I just couldn't control myself. I picked, lifted him up in the elevator by the neck, lifted him off the floor, and told him, if you ever touch anyone again, I'll beat you to a pulp. As the wife, 
<laughs> As the wife was hitting me, telling me to stop, don't hurt him. And in my, I realized at that moment, what am I doing? How could I do this? But I couldn't manage. And what was even worse, the elevator kept opening and closing and people wouldn't get, people wouldn't get on. Oh, I'll take the next one. I'll take the next one. <laughs> so that's one of those times. So I've had to really work at, at stuff because, you know, I've never been the smallest person. When I was little, I used to get angry. But I had to learn to manage it because my mom would always say, then you'll get in a lot of trouble. So this was one of those times. And one more question I think we have time for. Man, that was a tough one. You made me have to say something that I try not to think about very often. Okay. Hi, I'm Bridge, and I'm from New Orleans. Wait, what did you say your name was? My name is Bridge. Hi, Bridge. Um, what or who made you the person that you are today? That's probably an easy question. Thank you. First, I'd say my mom. But then I'd say all of my students, my colleagues, and my friends. That's why I said you're most important. You taught me all these different things. But again, you're not told enough to how important you are. We need to be saying that to you. People need to tell you that they love you. You hear all the bad stuff that I hate you, you're no good, or you're whatever. You need to know your love, but, and you need to know, you don't want to put your mark on a building, your name on a building. You want to leave your marks in someone's heart, in someone's head. Because that goes with them forever, wherever they are. And that's about them. It's not about you. Because people are most important. So wherever you go, whatever you do, I'm placing responsibility on you today. Make this world better. Let that be your mission, your job. I don't care what you, what you do as a profession. Think about how you can do that with whatever you do. I, I worked, last night I met with uh, positive psychology students and they talked about their presentations with me and all of them, I was so impressed. Because all of them were things of how to make the world better. Now they didn't necessarily think about it that way. But for me, I can, I'm a dot connector, so I connect all the dots. But all of their presentations are really about making the world better and helping people. And we don't do that enough. Society doesn't show you that enough, and you don't make, they think you don't make enough money. It's not about money, it's about people. If you do the right thing and do something wonderful, it's going to be worth a lot. But you use that money to make it better again. It's not for you. It's about for everybody else. So thank you. Thank you for having me come here. Uh, I, I, Mercyberg is so different and I love it. But all of you, again, don't ever forget how important you are. How you can make this world better. Don't let anyone tell you different. You need to know who you are. Don't let someone tell you who you are. If someone asks you who you are, you need to be able to tell them. If I were to ask, who are you? Have an answer. Six months later, you're going to have a different answer because you've grown. You've changed. But know who you are. That's another exercise I do with people. I make them stand in front of each other and someone asks them who they are and the person has to tell them. When two women do it, two men do it, and you flip a man and a woman, they say different things. Because they decide what's okay to say. But you got to do that kind of stuff. Think about you. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to tell people you are? And I don't mean to say all the good stuff. For me, it's like I had to work on holding, fixing my anger. Otherwise, I'd get in trouble. And we all, again, the only person you control most of the time is you. So I place the responsibility on you and all of you today. Take it to make this world better. Thank you. <laughs>